morning or afternoon, wherever you may be. Uh, this is Jim Shields with the Leader Next Door podcast, and I am honored today to have a special guest coming in all the way from beautiful Colorado, I think, today, but you never know where this man is. Um, <laughs> the, the legend mountaineer, um, a friend for quite some time now, Alan Arnett. Alan, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for coming on. Yeah, Jim, I really appreciate being a guest on your podcast. It's an honor for me as well. So, um, Alan, I mean, look, I started um, I started this podcast with the idea of interviewing leaders uh, from all walks of life um, in, in many different facets, many different ages. Um, and when I came up with this idea, I was really looking for something like this on Spotify or on Apple Music, somewhere that I could learn from leaders and like, how did they get to where they are now? You know, how did they, what mindset did they have in their training or their, um, their upbringing? How did it happen? And I really, I just couldn't find anything like that. So, um, I thought that I'd create that. And when, as soon as I started that, that idea and that process, you were someone that, that came to mind. Um, Alan, I want to do a quick introduction, um, about you and just talk about some of the things that you've done. And if I get it wrong, please correct me. Um, but going straight from alanarnett.com and some of the things that I know, um, Outside Magazine, which is the biggest outside outdoor magazine that there is, calls Alan one of the world's most respected chroniclers of Mount Everest. Um, I know that you are a longtime mountaineer, um, an Alzheimer's advocate. You summited Mount Everest in 2011. Um, you are currently, or at least you were a few years ago, the oldest American to summit K2, which is a whole nother ball game at age 58. And you yep. also did that on your birthday, July 27th, 2014. Um, are all those things still true, Alan? Let's start there. The, they are all still true. And I'm actually shocked that, uh, what is this now? Um, eight years later that, uh, some other old, old person hasn't, uh, surpassed my American record. I'm not the oldest, uh, I'm not the oldest person. That's Carlos Soria. Um, I believe he was 75 when he summited K2. So, okay. No, I'm sorry. He was 65. Yeah. He was 65. So he beat you by seven years, sort of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, I still have a goal, Jim. I still have a goal to get back. Yeah, you do. <laughs> yeah. Not really. <laughs> not really. So Alan, it, you know, it's funny because when I think back of like, um, how do how do I even know you? It's not like we grew up together. I, you, you know, we didn't run in the same circles. I mean, this is about a decade or so ago. I came across Alan's name when I was teaching my intro to mountaineering and survival class, and I reached out to Alan. And ever since then, he has been so kind to me, and has always come into, you know, even before Zoom, there was Skype. I don't know what happened to Skype during the pandemic, but. Um, <laughs> Alan used to come into my classroom all the way from Colorado via Skype and do these amazing presentations on climbing the seven summits and climbing Mount Everest and such. Um, I obviously want to talk about some of the challenges and some of the things that, that you've done, Alan. And I, I wanted to start off first with someone like you, who is, um, a decorated climber, who's done some amazing things and have put your body to the test so many times. What was it like for you growing up as a child? And where did maybe like some of this allure of the mountains, um, did it start at a young age? And what was your childhood like? 
you know, I, that's a great place to start, Jim, because, um, you know, people, maybe you'll ask me this later on, but, you know, what are my emotions when I stand on top of a summit? And uh, the overwhelming emotion is always one of gratitude. And I think that that gratitude starts with my roots because I was born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee, mm. uh, and, you know, delivered in the, uh, the Baptist hospital in downtown Memphis, elevation 312 feet. <laughs> um, you know, and I left Memphis, uh, after getting a degree in electrical engineering, uh, to go to Dallas to begin my career. Um, but you know, when I go climb mountains like K2 or even at an attempt on like a broad peak or a Shishapangma, much less than Everest or going down to Antarctica, it's just, I just shake my head and I say, my gosh, you know, what, 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 Wonderful things happened to me throughout my life that uh, brought me to this particular moment in my life. Yeah. So I don't take anything for granted. I'm very, very grateful to my parents um, and my brother uh, for being just instrumental in shaping my life at, at certain inflection points. Very quickly, we, my dad would always take us on a uh, family vacation in the 1963 Chevrolet Impala. Yeah. By the way. No air conditioning. And usually we would go down to Florida to Destin Beach or maybe down to see, you know, Parrot Jungle or whatever down in Florida. Uh, But one year we went to Colorado and we went to Estes Park, just, I mean, literally a a 45 minute drive from where I live now. And I remember we were at a dude ranch and uh, we were eating baked beans and barbecue. And I looked up and I could see Long's Peak, you know, at 14,259 feet. And I remember letting my eye trace the skyline. And I think that's where the seed was planted. I was probably 12 or 13. I was also a very active overachiever in Boy Scouts, you know, Eagle Scout and okay. every merit badge known to man, including <laughs> rabbit raising merit badge. And um, still, I don't you know, I so think I, that's extinct now, right? They still have that? <laughs> I'm not sure. I'd love to. I, that's a good trivia. I'm going to look that up. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I always loved camping and being in the outdoors and there was something about that that just touched me. So when I had the chance to move to Colorado, I jumped on it. Yeah. So, you know, you, you were in Boy Scouts, um, your dad used to take you on these trips and then the one time you finally went to Colorado, it sort of sticks in your head. That's pretty cool. Um, so you didn't have, you know, it's sort of like planted the seed you said, but it's not like you spent your teenage years or even young 20s or 20s at all really doing anything in the mountains. I know I've talked to you before. You worked for, was it uh, HP or one of the Xerox or something? No, HP. HP. Not Xerox. Come on, man. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. sorry. <laughs> so you worked for HP for a number. You could have said IBM, which would have been worse. So Yeah, it could have been, been worse. Sorry, I didn't mean to insult you. So what was that? What was that part of your that that segment of your life like? The whatever the your twenty years of work or um, what did that do for you? Did you get burnt out at that time? Did you were you looking out the window when you were traveling at these mountains? Like where did how did that part of your life like go? You know, I um, um, I got an, a degree in electrical engineering. I- Originally wanted to be either a forest ranger or a veterinarian. And I went in my first year, my freshman year at University of Memphis, I was in uh, a botany class and they were talking about, you know, how to do um, the genealogy of a, of a daisy. And then I went to zoology and they were talking about, you know, phylum, genus, species. And I'm going, hey, I just want to take care of little kittens. <laughs> and so I just, you know, I, I just flopped out of my first year and my brother 
um, said, oh, well, you should uh, you should go into electrical engineering. And, you know, uh, full disclosure here, uh, my brother graduated um, summa cum laude. No, no, no joke. Wow. And he has two PhDs, one in psychology, one in uh, chemistry. Wow. And my joke is that he graduated summa cum laude. I graduated thank you, laude. I mean, because <laughs> it, it, it is a, a miracle. One. And, uh, but, you know, I had developed a lot of uh, social skills and working with people and uh, I was working in a stereo store and somehow or another, uh, a gentleman named Robert Funk with Hewlett Packard interviewed me on campus and he ignored my GPA and he looked beyond that and saw something. And so I did go to work for Hewlett Packard in sales in Dallas there for eight years and then to um, then to Fort Collins, Colorado here for another seven years. And then I got a fantastic opportunity to go live in Europe, two years in Amsterdam, three years in Geneva, Switzerland, wow. and then back here to the to the States for other roles. But to the point, I was a card carrying workaholic. Hi, yeah. my name is Alan. All I care about is work. And um, and again, maybe we'll get into this later on, but I I firmly believe that life is a, an equilateral triangle with each one being your work, your family and yourself and trying to keep those in balance is really the secret to happiness, at least hmm. for me. Okay. And, you know, I in, in my getting bidding it in my year, my career, I was you know, it was all about work, family and me. You know, I, I wasn't bad, but I wasn't good. And so I was um, a very quick story. I was in Geneva, Switzerland, and I had climbed a couple of 14ers here in Colorado before I left, but nothing serious. Yeah. Certainly didn't have the passion for it. What and age I are was, we talking here, Alan, just to, just so we know? So this is going to be uh, in my middle 30s. So I started work for HP for at 22, 23. So, you know, for the next 15 years, I was heads down workaholic. Okay. I mean, that's all I did. And my career was advancing, you know, I had all the trappings of life, right? Money and, you know, success and titles and, you know, married and happily married, all that good stuff. Um, and which I didn't take for granted, but I was in my office in Geneva, Switzerland, and Muriel, uh, a French uh, lady who was our financial person, uh, she came in to me in late July. And, um, and she said, Alan, I will see you in September. Uh, Muriel, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. What happened to what happened to August? She goes, Oh, that's right. You're an American. You don't know about anything but working. I'm French. We take off August. We go to the beach. We go to the mountains. I reconnect with my family. We drink wine. We love cheese. We just reconnect. I recharge and I come back in September and I will work hard. See you. And she turned around and walked away. <laughs> and I'm sitting there. And you asked me, did I look out the window, see the mountains and think about this? Well, out the window of our home in Geneva, Switzerland, I could see Mont Blanc. Oh, yeah. And um, I got to thinking about that. And, uh, you know, I thought, you know what? Muriel is right. My life is single threaded only around work. Again, I wasn't a terrible husband, but I wasn't the best. Yeah. Well, you know, a terrible father, but I wasn't the best. Um, but as far as me, um, I was really not making any investment in me. And some people may say, well, Alan, that's softly, you know, selfish of you. Well, maybe. And I'll, and I'll take whatever comment anybody wants to make. But what I will say is that I think if you don't feed what keeps you alive, then that doesn't allow you to be a good employee, a good father, a good husband, yeah. uh, a good person, a good custodian of what we have on our planet. So I uh, made a decision. I uh, went to, I uh, did a trek to Everest Base Camp uh, a year later. And uh, it changed my life. 
going through Nepal and the Kumbu and seeing the Sherpas and the scale of the, the Himalaya mountains, the monasteries, the monks, the kids. And it just took off from there. So you're sitting there, <clears throat> you, you travel to Everest Base Camp and, you know, you, you see the, these ma- the biggest mountain in the world, the monasteries, the people. Um, was it on that trip that you said, um, I'm going to get up there and climb that in a couple of years? Or was it on that trip that you said, I want to get more into this? W- was it an instant thing of like, there's Everest, I need to get there? How did, the, there how did was- that work? Um, the answer to most of your questions is no. Um, I was I was enjoying the moment. Um, I absolutely just cherish being in the moment there. Uh, I was very much touched by the culture of the Sherpa people, their kindness, um, their compassion, their generosity. Um, you know, seeing kids playing with sticks, happy as a clam. Uh, I'm not sure how you measure that, but nonetheless. You know, uh, and compared to, you know, back in, in, in Switzerland or the United States, where if you didn't have your cell phone by the time you were eight and, you know, you were um, you know, disadvantaged. Yeah. And seeing these kids just playing with just, you know, a jump rope and just laughing and joking and maybe a doll. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, you know, these this this country understands happiness. Yeah. And um, now that said, with all due respect to the malice revolution going on in Nepal, and every country has its challenges, even the country that measures the gross happiness product, Bhutan, has its problems. You know, but I saw an overriding contentment and a connection living symbiotic with nature that really touched me. And I saw the mountains. And um, I came back to Switzerland and just talking about that with my wife. And, um, and I said, oh, my gosh, it was, it was life changing. Yeah. You know, I will never take life for granted again. And I said, I want to do more of this, but mm-hmm. I don't know what. And uh, she suggested Ama de Blom. And I'd seen Ama de Blom because it's ever present when you trek through the Kumbu. It's this pointy, just unbelievably beauty, beautiful mountain about 30 miles south of Everest. And I, and I was going along and I, I looked at our guide and I said, Nobody climbs that, right? And she goes, oh, yeah, yeah, people climb that. Well, okay, whatever. I'll never climb it. I don't have the skills, the time, the money. I don't have, I I can do this trek just fine, but I can never do that. Jim, two years later, I stood on the top of it. And that set in motion a series of events that uh, continue to change my life to this day. Do you think it's something like, I mean, you know, you basically started out as a trekker, like a hiker. You're walking through anybody, most any person of average fitness could probably, you know, if you have the funds, get out there and do something like that. Feel that inspiration that you felt. Two years later, you're standing on the summit, which is a whole different sort of, you know, set of skills. And then you said like after, how do you pronounce that mountain again? Ama de Blom. Ama de Blom. So when you're on the summit of Ama de Blom, um, you get that little bit of like confidence. Like, you know, that you, two years ago you were standing down there just like a, the average Joe looking at this thing. Now you're standing on that and you're still looking up though. You still see things that are higher. Like, is there, is there a piece like, I don't know. I'm wondering if, if this happened in your work life too, where you get that bit of confidence that gives you the little push and a little more energy to do that next thing. And it keeps building and building and building. Did you find that happening? You know, let me answer that in two parts. Um, so 
basically, I, I, I have a degree in electrical engineering and don't even ask me a single question about circuit design or, you know, what, what the graph of a high pass filter would look like or the difference between a transistor, a capacitor and a resistor. I'm really dating myself. These are all analog terms. I'm sure people would really uh, want to hear about that as opposed to, you know, that your experience is on Everest, but maybe for another show. I thought this was, you know, this was electrical engineering one-on-one podcast. <laughs> Next week. <laughs> and so, but I, but I knew that my skills were not in the analytical side of my brain, but it was on the relationship and the emotional side. Yeah. So my goal joining Hewlett Packard was to get into <laughs> senior management as soon as possible, because I felt that's where I could make the most, um, most impact. And so uh, my career really progressed along those lines very, very quickly. And so, um, you know, I always had this goal and, and I, I was a general manager for a lot of different disparate uh, organizations, digital cameras, um, something called managed print services, where we bought people's laser jets back and replaced it with a per page fee, running the consumer customer uh, support organization in Europe with, you know, thousands of employees and hundreds of millions of dollars in uh, profit and loss. So really, but somebody once asked me, says, Alan, you know, you're, you're really not an expert in anything, are you? Because you, you keep going into these organizations like startups yeah. within the company. So you're really not an expert in electronics like digital cameras, you know, with the, you know, the image pipeline or, you know, customer support and understanding call center technologies. And I said, you know what? I'm dangerous in all of that. But what I'm good at, I'm good at creating, fostering an environment where the employees can achieve their maximum human potential. Hmm. That became my life mission statement, that I wanted to create environments where people could, you know, regardless of what our, our, our remit was, it was to be able to get satisfaction and go home feeling like they made a difference, feeling they were part of an appreciated team, yeah. that they had an opportunity to grow as an individual, as an employee, whatever it may be. So that was my senior purpose. Then when you take that and apply that philosophy to climbing, mm -hmm. my goal was never to go climb Mount Everest or K2. Jim, I never had a master plan for climbing with the exception of the seven summits in one year. Right. And that was for a very specific reason around Alzheimer's. So I just went on a climb, be it Amitabhlaum or Choyou or Broad Peak, and I would come home and I would evaluate how I felt on that. And we can talk about this later on, but I have five criteria which drive me to go into whether I'm going to go climb again or not. And so I could, would come home and I would, you know, talk to my family and friends. And, and I always had a senior purpose. And for, and for a long time, I was never able to articulate it. And, it's, and really, it happened maybe 10 or 15 years ago that I realized that the reason that I love mountaineering and climbing and suffering is that I come home a better version of myself. Yeah. That by going through those trials, by suffering on those mountains, regardless if I summit or not, that's almost <laughs> irrelevant. My goal was to have a positive experience and to whatever was thrown at me was to be able to manage how I reacted to whatever that that controversy or that that suffering was that I had I would grow to be able to react in a way that was positive, supportive of my teammates, supportive of our mission, but also giving me the opportunity to be introspective and to grow and to come home to be a better version of myself and hopefully be able to contribute to the world in a, in a more positive manner. And I, I think, Alan, there's there's a few things I want to say um, in regards to that. 
The first thing is so, you said it so beautifully, you really did. And this idea that it's not always just about being the expert in this little, you know, this little electrical area or this thing. You had this skill that is, not only is it overlooked in life, I, I don't even think like being a high school teacher, excuse me, being a high school teacher I don't even think it's it's rarely talked about this idea of leadership and fostering um, a group of people to make them feel a special way and to make them feel valued. I wanted to ask you, I didn't want to cut you off because that story was awesome that you just said. How do you do that though? And 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 drawing from your experience working even before you got into mountaineering, like what advice would you give to some a young person maybe just getting done school and wants to become that? Um how do you become that? What are some of the things that you did to make people feel good and feel like they want to get this job done and work for that, that team and, and accomplish goals? How do you do it? One of the organizations that I led, um, um, I came into it and, they, and the organization had a pretty, pretty bad reputation as being a high maintenance, um, <laughs> you know, that the employees didn't get along with each other. Everybody was selfish. They didn't support the vision. They didn't believe in the vision. Okay. Um, they didn't believe in the leadership. And this was a tumultuous time at Hewlett Packard. There was a change in the CEO, you know, the entire, the good old garage oriented, you know, HP way feeling of everybody was appreciated was slowly getting diluted by, you know, the, the, the uh, profit margin pressure and, yeah. you know, making your numbers, make your numbers, make your numbers. You know, I don't care what it takes, make your numbers. And so, it, there was a really a huge morale issue in this organization that I uh, took over. And what I did was um, the first thing I did was I went in and I scheduled five minutes without. <laughs> so, and I had like, you know, 300 people. So I just sat in the conference room and just, you know, on a, every 10 minutes for five minutes, somebody would come in and I would just say, you know, what can we do more of less of how can we make this a better place? How do you feel? And I would just listen, make notes. Well, after about 20 of them, yeah. you know, I, I began to understand, but not, but then the second thing I did was then for the next four or five years, um, cause I would, this was at, I was working out of Boise, Idaho. So I would commute from Fort Collins there and I would do lunch with Alan. And so <laughs> we would have, you know, people would just sign up. We would took the, you know, the, 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 the telephone book and went through and, you know, pick six people. And, you know, it would, every day it was six people and I would go sit down and have lunch. We'd all buy our own lunch, just sit down and talk. And I just listened to what their concerns were. And then to the, to the extent of my capacity and ability and authority, I would listen to what they say and try to, you know, take action. So I think one of the best things I did in hindsight was I just listened. I didn't try to go in to say I'm the expert in, you know, this particular field of managed print services, which is an arcane idea to start with, you know, but I said, you know, what we are, this is what, you know, and I made it very clear what our objectives were, what our metrics were, you know, how we were going to be measured and then pass that through the management chain to say, please make sure that every single one of the team has their role understood in a clear un and unambiguous way their role, their responsibility, you know, their decision-making capacity and try to empower them as much as possible. You know, I know what my strengths are. I know what my personal weaknesses are. And I tried to hire people that complemented what my strengths and weaknesses. And in many cases, they were infinitely better than I was in running the business. I remember this Absolutely. one gentleman, yeah. Morris, Morris was just, I mean, you know, he, he, he kicked my butt when it comes to <laughs> 
of the, the intellectual aspect of this business. And so he was great, but you know, his people skills were a little mushy at times. So we were able to complement each other. So somebody young going into a business, figure out what your strengths and your weaknesses are, where you can contribute, hire people that complement what you do, work with people that complement. Don't compete. Don't be afraid that somebody is smarter than you or knows more than you or is more effective in this area than you. Celebrate that difference, build on that difference so that you have collective synergy that allows the organization to accomplish what it, what it, you know, what its mission is. Wow. And the way you said that, um, it's no surprise that whatever group you were in charge of was so successful. I mean, just the idea of listening to people and working with young people. Now I know that, um, young people struggle with their listening skills, uh, oftentimes because there's so many distractions these days, whether it's the cell phone. I mean, I'll be honest with you, half of the kids that come into maybe a quarter of kids that come into class. And this is probably in college too. They have headphones in their ears, Bluetooth headphones. So it's like, you can't really be a good listener if you can't even hear. So, I mean, I really do like the way that I I feel like there's so much value in what you said, five minutes with Alan or lunch with Alan, those types of things where you sit down and you're not judging, you're listening, which means you care and you're spending that time, man, I I just feel like that builds so much trust and will get people in your organization, whatever it is, to feel like, man, this guy or this girl, whatever it is, listens to me and and, and actually cares what what I'm thinking about. I I don't think enough could be said about that, and I'm so glad that you put it that way. It's it's amazing. And this could be applied to, like you said, mountaineering, working for HP, working as a teacher. It it just doesn't matter. The other thing you said in that, um, when you were talking, is that it's not, and I, I definitely relate to this, and I bet you a lot of people out there would too. Any mountain that I've climbed, um, I don't remember really enjoying the climbs. Um, <laughs> I hate, you know, it's hard, it's stressful, sometimes scary, and I'm nowhere near the level you are, but I know what I've done. But there's something about the drive home, and you start to reflect about what you did and what's the next thing. You know, what's next? And it's like, wait a minute, why am I thinking like that? Because I just tortured myself for anywhere from a day to a month or whatever it was. Um, and But like you said, when you came back from a lot of your adventures, you were a better version of yourself or, you know, you, you just kept getting, getting better. And I think like, you know, mother nature in general and, and mountains uh, can give us so much. And in many different ways, even if you're just sitting out there looking at it, maybe with your family, you can go all the way from that to summiting Everest or summiting K2. Um, I just think there's so much energy that the natural world and mountains can bring to us. And I'm sure you felt some of that, too. I always when uh, people ask about trekking to Everest Space Camp and stuff, I, I always I always say, full stop, go do it. It will change your life for the better if you are open to it, yeah. if you let it. And I think that's the filter that a lot of young people have today that, you know, they're sitting there listening to who knows what they're listening to instead of listening to, you know, you as a, as an instructor, um, that there's this, um, you know, in mountaineering, I, I, I call it the, um, the sin of arrogance that we see that growing and growing now, especially right now. I think that we can, we're in, this is way off topic to some extent, but I think we're in a, in an age, an inflection point, in an inflection point in mountaineering, where 
you know, how people used to climb is totally different. Today, people are using supplemental oxygen at yeah. higher flow rates at lower levels. Their support is two Sherpas to every one person on these big 8,000 meter mountains. Um, yeah. And so just the entire style has changed. And I and then people summit and there or they come home and they just pour over social media with all these selfies, never mentioning the Sherpa that, they, that was with them or the, the, you know, the team that they were with or the people that cooked their food. Yeah. Um, and there's this sin of arrogance, which I think is diluting the reward that comes from the suffering. Um, and, you know, it is, it is a suffer fest. Um, I love this quote. It's a quote from a, from a play by Thornton Wilder that says an adventure, the definition of an adventure is when you're on it, you pray to God to get you home alive. And when you're home, you pray to God to go back and do it again. That's it. You know, that's the adventure. And, um, you know, and I think people that fly in, run up as quick as they can, come back down, fly home, declare victory, and tell the story about how they did it, you know, without acknowledging the, I call it the constellation of experts yeah. that are, that help you do whatever it is that you're doing. And by the way, that constellation of expert applies to anything. You're a school teacher. You know, there, there is somebody that comes in and cleans that room Absolutely. every single day. Yep. His name is Joe. Shout out to Joe. He does a tremendous job. <laughs> Good old Joe. Yep. And in a, in a mountaineering expedition like on Everest, you have the toilet guy, mm-hmm. the guy that comes in and hauls away the poop barrel every yep. day. You know, kudos to him. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, nobody, is, nobody does anything these <clears throat> days, probably ever, alone. I mean, my joke is that even Reinhold Messner had a cook at base camp on his solo, solo expedition on the north side. Yeah. Now, granted, what he did was absolutely remarkable, but, you know, it's very rare. So acknowledging that team and that's part of, I think, uh, the responsibility of leadership is helping to identify and to give uh, honor to each person on the team for what their contribution is, regardless of whether it's the, you know, the big high profile, like in research and development, you've got what I always call the super scary smart guy or yeah. girl, you know, that, oh my gosh, I don't <laughs> understand what you just said, yeah. much less you can do it. Uh, <laughs> but honoring them and, but honoring, you know, somebody that might be responsible for scheduling conference rooms. I mean, you know, yeah. it's just, it takes, it takes an army to do this stuff these days. It does. And I think like, I don't know, Alan, I mean, for me, my life's been a journey too. And I feel like, you know, I was sort of raised as an only child and I think I grew up pretty selfish actually. And, you know, through the years I, I sort of looked in the mirror, got feedback from others. Um, it's taken me a while to, and I honestly, like I've been that person before where I kind of like, you know, patted myself on the back and, oh, look what I did. And, and, you know, I think over the the past decade or so I've changed. And what you said is um, so brilliant, you know, just giving honor to those that make it possible for us and really showing that respect and, and, you know, to the team that made it possible, you know, very, <laughs> Very few things in life, including climbing, are, you know, are done just on your own. And I, I think that's a great sort of demonstration or example of leadership that you said that. Um, and, and, you know, for me, it's a work in progress. And people that might be listening, hey, like, just because you might have some selfish tendencies, like, you can also change. And sometimes it's okay to be a little selfish. But, like, 
Um, you know, as we get better and evolve, like you said, when you come back from your trips, you become a better version of yourself. Like we're always trying to get better. I know myself included and, you know, giving, giving thanks and showing gratitude, like, like you said in the beginning to others is such a big piece of, you know, leadership and feeling, feeling success and, and, um, just moving forward in a positive way. You know, one of my, um, my first, my, uh, in 2011, on my fourth trip to Everest, uh, I went with international mountain guides out of, um, out of Seattle, Washington area. And, um, so we trekked to base camp and I got there and, uh, I was going to have a a so-called personal Sherpa, which simply means that this, you know, a Sherpa would be with me the entire time. Yes. And, um, I got there and I, I heard my name, you know, Alan, come over here. You know, <laughs> it was on John Boo and John Boo was the, um, the overall sitar, uh, for the expedition and working along with, uh, Greg Gravanovich. And, uh, so I walked over and John Boo says, Alan, I would like to introduce you to Kami Sherpa. He will be your personal Sherpa. Kami. Oh my gosh. So I'm about five, 10, five, 11. Kami's about five, six, five, seven. <laughs> and, um, uh, he looked at me with this, you know, brown tanned face, incredibly fit, chiseled, and <laughs> he stuck out his hand and I shook his hand and, and his hand was so warm, so warm, but the look in his eye was so genuine and so yeah. sincere. And, and he said in kind of a Nepali semi-broken English, Alan, nice to meet you. <laughs> we climb Everest together. Wow. And he grabbed, he picked up both of my duffel bags, which he weighed about 60 pounds, <laughs> one on his shoulder, walked over to my tent, dropped them. He says, what can I do to help you? And fast forward now, after going up and acclimatizing, we're leaving the South Coal at 26,000 feet, 8,000 meters, the beginning of the death zone. Yep. And, um, you know, it's like 10 o'clock at night. The winds had been blowing all day long and then they stopped. And um, so... I heard my name, you know, Alan, Alan, come on, let's go. So it was Kami, you know, helping me put on my, my uh, pack and my oxygen bottles. And, and, um, by that time we really bonded, uh, Kami was about 47 years old, five children, uh, married to Lopka Dickey lives in Pangboche, about 30 miles down Valley from Everest. And, um, Kami couldn't read or write. And his goal was for his children to have a better life than he did. Yeah. And his father couldn't read or write. And he was also an Everest guide. And Kami did not want his children to be Everest guides. Um, but we started taking off. And um, we there was like 40 people in front of us. Pretty normal for Everest. We're leaving the South Cove, going up the triangular face. And all of a sudden, Kami looks over his shoulder at me. So we're both clipped into the fixed rope, yep. you know, the nylon rope that basically is your safety line. And he looks over my shoulder and he just kind of gives me this, this, what I call the Bigfoot nod. You know, you've seen these pictures of Bigfoot, right? Oh, yeah. You know, kind of going through and the Bigfoot looks over at the camera <laughs> and then he keeps on going. Well, he gave me the Bigfoot look and he unclipped the rope, which is a no, no, never unclip, never unclip. He unclipped, I unclipped and we passed 40 people. And now along with Miriam, my, one of my teammates, and uh, Mingma, the Sherpa that she was with, the four of us now were leading the charge up on May 20th, 2011, going up the triangular face towards the balcony. The purpose of that story is that there are times, and this was now my fourth trip on Everest. Yep. This was my seventh trip on an 8,000 meter mountain. Yep. And so 
but there are times for leadership and times for followership. And I don't care how good you are in your field. There are moments in your career, in your life, when the best thing you can do is be a good follower yeah. and follow a good leader. And that day I followed Kami to the best of my ability. <laughs> I was 54. He was 47. And this was his 13th summit of Everest. And the guy was kicking my butt and that was everything I could do just to keep up with him. Yeah. You know, but we summited and uh, that was a, that was a moment, but that follower in, in leadership um, characteristics, I think, is a critical life lesson for everybody, is that understand your own capacity, understand what your contribution is to be, to have that that balance between ego and humility yeah. that allows you sometimes to be the leader and sometimes to be the follower. And it's not right or wrong. It's just situational. Man, I, that's, you're dropping some knowledge here today, Alan. I mean, this, it's amazing too, uh, that so many things that we learn from the mountains and, and mountaineering and just outdoor recreation in general, but specific to mountains is, is so relevant, you know, like so relevant to just being a leader in life and being a successful person. I mean, a lot of, a lot of the books we read and a lot of the stories we hear are from like the military, um, you get a lot of military examples, but I feel like mountaineering has its own sort of set of things that could happen. Just like when Kami gave you that look and said, all right, it's go time. We're, we're, we're doing it our way. And, and you have that connection, you know, together. And that's cool. Uh, people, you know, it, it's funny. And you may, <laughs> a lot of people that might listen to this podcast, Alan, um, they're probably hearing some things that are, they're like, I don't know what a fixed rope is. I don't, who, who knows who's listening, but what I want to say is, um, Let's talk. I know that Kami has meant so much to you because we've talked a lot. And um, this Sherpa has just like, you know, we could go on and on for that. And we'll talk about that maybe in a little bit. But what is a Sherpa in general? Because I think people have kind of an idea. But what is this idea of the Sherpa people? And are they, you know, you hear stories of maybe they're superhuman because they live at high altitude. And in general, like what who are the Sherpa people in relation to Everest in, it, in that area. So the the word Sherpa is the same as the word American or Australian or German. It's not a job title. They're not a porter. They're not a load carrier. A Sherpa is the name of a people. Um, um, and so that the Sherpa people originated in Tibet um, thousands of years ago, lived on the high plains of Tibet at 17,000 feet, the steppes of Tibet. And through that evolution, their bodies adjusted in such a way that they process lower amounts of oxygen more efficiently than you and I do living at basically sea level. So as a result, when they go to 25,000 feet, they are, their, their machine, their body is more efficient than what your, ours would be. Yeah. So they, you know, they're still human. They still get altitude sickness and, you know, other sicknesses and all of that, but they're able to operate faster than what we are. And, you know, and Kami demonstrated it to me <laughs> multiple times, Yeah, <laughs> but they began to migrate from Tibet mainly for religious freedom issues 300 years ago. Okay. So this isn't a, you know, a recent 1950s China invading Tibet thing. This has been going on quite a while. 
And they found refuge in northern India, which is where the Dalai Lama lives today, and also in, um, it would be eastern Nepal. Mm -hmm. And many of them settled in the valley called the Khumbu, K-H-U-M-B-U, the Khumbu, which is leads up to Mount Everest, but also in other valleys in eastern Nepal. Um, originally, they were very happy living a fairly subsistence lifestyle, growing potato, potatoes, wheat, barley, and, you know, living in stone homes and with a yak and, you know, a cow. To, and so, you know, it was a very simple lifestyle. But then as Westerners came to Nepal and to southern Tibet to go climb mountains, um, they recognized the strength and the uniqueness of these, these, these people. And they also, the, the Sherpa people, saw the opportunity to make a lot of money. So fast forward now to 2022, a Sherpa can make between five and $9,000 in two months. Wow. In, in a country in Nepal where the per capita income is $900 a year. Wow. So thousands a month versus hundreds a year. And, but the downside of that, the flip side of that is it's a dangerous, it's a dangerous job. Yeah, it is. It is a dangerous job. I mean, you see on on many expeditions, it seems like um, whether it's IMG or there's, I, I don't know how many outfitters are even allowed to guide Everest and some of the big peaks these days, but do most all of them um, hire porter, porters and load carriers that are Sherpas? Well, so um, two different things. The uh, people that you see with the huge, you know, rack on their back, yeah. you know, it, it looks like it's, you know, it weighs 300 pounds, which it very well could. Yeah. Uh, typically, those are other um, um, ethnicities that live in throughout Nepal okay. and India. Uh, for example, Rai, R-A-I is a, one of the ethnicities. Uh, the Sherpa people, it's actually um, began, it used to be pretty much exclusively their, you know, their job. But now there are other ethnicities that are coming in uh, that are working on the mountain itself. So okay. it's a little, it's not a, it's not a pure answer anymore. Yeah. And, and you know, the, 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 but the real story is that they're all just, um, you know, amazing, amazing human specimens of strength and perseverance. Yeah. So amazing people. Um, so for those, you know, a lot of people out there you know, haven't been listening to you for a long time before this or know your story or know much about mountaineering at all. But, you know, you, you tried to summit Everest, was it three times? And then the fourth time is when you made it in 2011. Yeah. Thanks for pointing that out. Here, you know? <laughs> Listen, no one, probably no one listening's ever, well, maybe on your end, if, if, if you share this, I'm sure there's a couple people that have tried it, but not on my end. Um, I just want to paint a picture, okay? So you get out there. First of all, what is it? Basically, whether you summit or not, it's about, what, a two-month commitment? Yeah. Close to that in general. So you get out there. You fly into Kathmandu. You make your way through the mountains, however you do that, whether it's foot, horseback, helicopter. I don't know. You get to Everest Base Camp, and you roll in there. Um, you know, For the first time in maybe a couple of days, you throw your backpack off. That, that, you know, you're working with a team that's probably helping getting tents set up. You're looking at the mountain, if you can see it. And what are, what are your thoughts the first time you were there to make, you know, eventually make the climb? What, what was going through your head, like, when you first got to base camp that first day? You know, uh, um, you, you really, you can't see on the, on the Nepal side, you cannot see Everest from base camp. On, okay. the, on the Tibet side, it is just in your face. Okay. And so you really can't see it there. But on the Nepal side, which is a site I climbed on four times and then Lhotse another two times. So I've been through this process six times yeah. um, that um, 
you get there and, and, and it's, uh, it's surreal because you're actually, your tent is pitched on a moving glacier. Yeah. And in fact, that's got environmental issues that are being addressed currently. But you, you know, at night when you sleep, you hear the cracking of the ice moving. And then you hear a giant avalanche coming off the Lola Pass or the Chola Pass. And, you know, you wonder if that avalanche is going to come in and take out base camp. Uh, it ne- it don't, the only time it ever has was at, when the earthquake in 2015. But normally, normally base camp is set up in a pretty safe place. Yeah. But it's at the foot of the Kumbu Icefall which is this 2000 foot glacier, which drops over an edge and drops at about a 30 degree angle for 2000 feet from 19.5 to 17.5. That thing is moving on average three feet a day, a meter a day, but it's not this smooth river, it's this jerking. And when it, it, there's enough friction and the momentum comes together, it just jerks and those big old sracks fall over. And they explode like dropping an ice cube on a tile floor. And you're just, you know, and if somebody's around, and I have been within five seconds of getting smashed by one of those. And it's, uh, you know, it is Mother wow. Nature uh, saying, you know, be careful what you ask for, kid. Yeah. <laughs> so you're there in this environment of base camp. It's also this little United Nations. There's 25, 30, 35 teams. Literally, this year, I think there was um, a 78 countries represented at Everest Space Camp, something in that neighborhood. So, you know, it's, it's the Tower of Babel. You're hearing every language and you know, every culture all the way from obnoxious loud music to <laughs> hearing, you know, chants and prayer chants going on, um, you know, all the way from, you know, generators to nothing but solar panels. So it's the spectrum of the best and in some cases the yeah. worst of humanity. But it's just this, I mean, it's just this moment where, again, I this word I'll, I continue to use is gratitude. You realize how fortunate you are. And this is another thing I always mention yeah. to people on this subject is that, if, if, you know, you take a trek, a trek to Everest Base Camp, you know, maybe you get to spend the night if you go with a climbing team. But, you know, just being at Everest Base Camp is also a, a pretty nice little gift. It'll cause you to look at the world in a different way. Yeah, no, that's that's pretty amazing. I mean, it sounds like a fun party. I, and, and I know that... <laughs> And that's if I'm not climbing it, but I, I will tell you this, um, you know, I've seen like into thin air and, uh, Everest and I forget which one it was. I think it's into thin air. Um, is that the one with Jake Gyllenhaal? Either way, one of them is, is sort of like sitting in a lounge chair at base camp, drinking some like tequila, getting ready for the next day. Do you see any of that stuff going on or is that all sort of Hollywood? Oh, that's, that's the, you know, those are parodies and, um, um, but the one on K2, um, I'm drawing a blank on the name of it. Uh, uh, you know, those are those are pretty much listed as the worst mountaineering movies of all time. And I think it's because to some extent the parody is, is too close to reality. Wow. I mean, you know, you'll see the parties where, you know, the Everest whiskey and the rum and the, in the Chang, which is this moonshine stuff that the Sherpas drink. Um, you know, that's, that's going on. And you see a lot of what the Sherpas call making sauce on the mountain, um, making sauce. So, <laughs> you know, so there's, um, yeah, and, but you know, there's this, there's this wild element to it, but this counterbalanced by this understanding that what you're doing has some pretty serious implications and risk. 
And, you know, all of a sudden, all the fun and games comes to a screeching halt when you hear over the radio, you know, we've, we've just had a, a avalanche onto the ice fall. We've got Sherpas in the ice fall. Send everybody that you can to let's yeah. do a rescue. Yeah. Or you hear that, you know, we've got three climbers that are struggling after their summit and uh, we need to figure out how to get them down to camp two or camp three for yeah. a long line helicopter rescue. And all of a sudden, all that fun and games kind of comes to an end when you realize that people, people are dying. Yeah. You know, people are also celebrating this moment in their life that they never dreamed. So it's kind of the the old um, uh, adage, what is in the wide world of sports, you know, the the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Yeah. Um, and it really does kind of encapsulate the environment. I know you've seen, um, you know, so you, you get to this base camp and what, you hang out there for a few days typically before you head out and do the first, what is it? The Kumbu icefall camp one. Is there a couple days at base camp to chill out, to relax, to acclimatize at that elevation? What elevation is that? 19 or something? Well, it's a 30, it's a 30 mile walk. It takes about seven days to go from Lukla where you fly in at 9,000 feet to about 17,500. And so you take that long time to let your body acclimatize and you're right. You get there and you spend, you know, anywhere from two to five days. Yeah. Um, Sometimes reviewing skills and things They'll put up like a little obstacle course where you walk across the ladders in a safe place rather than do it the first time in the ice fall. Yeah. But then you, you know, you rest up and then you go up for your first rotation. You know, it's fine. I really only learned this um, not recently, but I just thought, you know, you climbed Mount Everest. It was a hard climb. It took you, it was a long day out or something, or maybe you, you hiked up yeah. and set up a tent and then you went up again. But there's this whole process of acclimatization that in general, um, you kind of go up a little bit. Maybe you stow your stuff there. You come back down and sleep. Um, you could probably tell us that in 60 seconds or less, the whole yeah. process of, you know, basically from base camp to the summit, how many days does it take total if you're successful? And what does that look like quickly? Just for people that have no yeah. clue. So there, there, there's two, there's two uh, schools of thought here. Let me do the old school, the new school, and I'll do 30 seconds on each. The old school is climb high, sleep low. And you'll go up from base camp, sleep at camp one, come back down, go back up, sleep at camp two, come back down, go up to camp three, come back down. Now you've spent probably uh, three to four weeks above 17,000 feet. Your body has created more red blood cells in reaction to the lower amount of available oxygen. Right. So that's really what you're fighting is that when you're at Everest Space Camp, there's 50% of the oxygen that you have at sea level. On the summit, it drops to a third. So you go up and down the mountain to force your body to create those red blood cells, and that's called acclimatization. That's the old school. And typically you arrive at you arrive at base camp around tax day, April 15th. And if you're lucky, you summit around July, June 21st. So there's about a six week, six week period of doing that whole process and waiting for the weather window. That's yeah. when the winds are under 30 miles an hour. The new school is that you use these so-called altitude tents and you sleep in basically a plastic bag. Um, I don't recommend this for marital relations, but nonetheless, you sleep in this, this, this plastic dome over your head and your bed attached to a generator, which simulates a lower air pressure, thus lower oxygen amounts. And that then causes your body to have that same similar reaction of creating those red blood cells. You do this for about six weeks before you even leave home. 
And that eliminates, that takes your body up to around 17,000 feet, maybe even higher in some cases. And that allows people now to go and take only one acclimatization rotation, not three or four or five. Wow. One. And now last year, uh, Lucas uh, Frutenbach, he had a team that did it in 16 days home to home. Wow. Two years ago, uh, Roxanne Vogel did it on the north side in two weeks, home to home. She left home, summited was back home in two weeks. Is that becoming, do you see that as the future of guiding the 8,000 meter peaks? There are a lot of people that are, uh, that are saying, yes, if you, if you do, if you spend two months, you're wasting your time, you're wasting your money. You have longer you're there, the more opportunity to get sick. So why don't you just do it this way? Cause you get there, you go up, you come down, you go home, you go back to work. Well, I kind of think it misses the point, mm-hmm. but to answer directly answer to your question, I'm seeing more and more guides offering that because it's pretty much proven. Um, but it's also, you know, you're also running those expeditions run at a higher oxygen flow rate. They've got extra Western guides to be with you in case something goes wrong. Um, your, your body is, is not acclimatized as at the same level as it would naturally. And I know some people would argue with me and say, Alan, you don't know what you're talking about. The physiology and science says this, you know, but I've also been there and yeah. seen this. Uh, but also know people that are doing it, Jim, all the time now, and they swear by it. So, yes, I think this is going to be the new trend. I think the old school way will always be around for people who want the full experience. But, you know, if you're big and important and you've got more money than time, then these fast expeditions are probably right for you. Interesting. Um, I know I'm a little sarcastic with that. No, I get you. Um, <laughs> I appreciate the uh, sort of update on what's what's going on. I mean, you are the uh, representative for the U.S., I feel, for all information, Everest and mountaineering, and, and that's... Um, that's awesome. Um, w- there's so many questions I have for you. I know, I know you don't have all day. Um, and I, I do appreciate this time that you're taking with me. Um, I want to like, when I go out and do some expeditions, whether it's on a mountain and usually on a mountain, um, oftentimes there's something that man, like I can't do without, and sometimes I don't have it. And I'm talking about food. Um, sometimes it's like, man, I wish I just had a beer. Sometimes like I'll even throw in like a diet Coke in my backpack. Cause I just like those. I used to anyway. And it's like that little, like whether it's a bar of chocolate or whatever, is there anything that you found on your expeditions that you better bring this in case things get real bad? Like, so you have it, <laughs> whether it's a Twix bar, or I don't know. Is there anything like that for you? You know, when we came off the summit of K2, um, uh, Garrett Madison, uh, I, the, um, Kami Rita, who is the Sherpa who has 26 summits of Everest, he was on our team, just a sweetheart of a man. That's different than the Kami from Pengboche. This okay. is Kami Rita. Okay. And um, he, um, uh, he had brought up a liter of Coke. Now, this is fully leaded Coke, not Diet Coke. <laughs> and so there were six of us, and we were at high camp and passing it around. And uh, Garrett got a video of me, and I'm drinking this Coke, and I, you know, I, I thanked everybody. And um, I got a little flack for that. People said, oh, so Coke sponsored you, huh? Or how could you drink that double water, you know? And, <laughs> and let me tell you what. I have never had a beverage that tasted so good. <laughs> Because, you know, you're just depleted and everything. sugar, and I don't know what's in a Coke, you know, but, you know, Who the knows? secret formula, the sugar in it just, I had never tasted anything so good. Yeah. But also I love Mars bars and Three Musketeers. And, you know, my, my, my measure is if I'm doing okay on an expedition is if I wake up like at three o'clock in the morning hungry, 
that means I'm doing okay. And I grab a Mars bar and I'll eat it. <laughs> I, I know you've said in the past, like you've lost tremendous amounts of weight. Could you yeah. give us a, an average or what's the most amount of weight you've lost on an expedition? Yeah, I've lost 30 pounds before going in around 170, 175 and been at the 150, 145. Now that's pretty, that's pretty temporary. You, you gain it back pretty quickly. And most of that ends up being water weight, yeah. <laughs> but it also is muscle. And here's the part that just pisses me off to no end is that you go in, you know, you're the sculpted body. Yeah. Maybe you still have a little belly fat, Yeah. Well, you come home and your biceps are gone, Yeah. but your belly is still there. <laughs> so it's not you're, fair. You're, no, your stuff. body is your body consumes all of the muscle, you know, and it leaves the fat. So yeah. I guess that's a, that's a, you know Darwin at its best that we need we need the fat to keep our body alive. I yeah, I guess I guess that's true. My general rule of thumb, though, Jim, is if you lose ten percent of your body weight, you probably don't have enough um, uh, strength to summit. Well, and most okay. of the weight that I've lost has been during the summit push. Okay. Yeah, like the last day or two or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um. Okay, so how the heck does all that food get up there? And how many how many calories do you consume in the six weeks that you might be on Everest? Yeah, I mean, you can consume a thousand calories an hour when you're doing active climbing, ten thousand yeah. a day. Um, that, you know, I often call that the you know Jenny Craig Everest diet. So you know. <laughs> doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, but the um, so the food gets up there, taken in uh, primarily on the on the back of yaks uh, or on porters. And in some cases these days, um, helicopters will bring in, you know, some of the fresh food. The thing that, uh, that, that if there's one takeaway about eating is in this one word, and that is protein. Mm. Most of the time, what you see on these expeditions are carbs. Yeah. Cause a lot of people, you know, carbs feed our body. And so we need more carbs and all of that. It's a, it's a fast, quick hit fuel. Well, my experience is if I have nothing but carbs or predominantly 80% carbs, it doesn't do it for me. I need, I need protein. So I need eggs and nuts, and yeah. cashew, you know, bacon and jerky. So I will bring from home a fair amount of, um, of, um, pro, uh, protein with me to make sure I have that. Yeah. No, that's uh, I'm sure you just have one full suitcase with beef jerky in it or something <laughs> like that. Yes, you have to. Um, and one, one Mars bars suitcase. Um, exactly. So <clears throat> you got the formula. <laughs> <laughs> so some other things, Alan, like I know I talk to people a lot about mountaineering and stuff. And, and, um, I, I think people are going to be curious, like when you're up there and you have to like a simple thing, like go to the bathroom, like a number two, not at base camp, but when you're traveling up through there, what's the protocol for that? Some people are like, Oh, do you just, you know, sit on the edge and go over? Do you go into a bag? Do you go into a crevasse? Like, what do you, what do you do? You know, it, my, my first trip ever to experience that was in the late 90s. And so fast forward roughly 25 years, it used to be, uh, with the exception of Denali, that um, people would just go poop anywhere. Mm -hmm. And it, it was gross. Yeah. I mean, I've been on like Elbrus in Russia mm. or early days on Aconcagua outside of Camp One. There's the, um, you know, the poop field. Mm. And it's just, I mean, it's gross. Yeah. It, it's just it is insulting to you know mother earth absolutely so over time um companies and countries have done a better job of trying to educate people on the leave no trace uh principles of you know take pictures yeah. leave footprints 
Um, and so these days, wag bags or, you know, just blue mm-hmm. plastic bags that have some type of little, maybe a sanitation built into it. And, you know, yeah, you, you squat and place the bag appropriate and do your business. And then you tie up the bag, maybe double bag it. And you put that baby in your pack. You know what? If it was inside your system, then it shouldn't be so bad as to put in your pack. That's true. It's even better, it seems. <laughs> I mean, come on, who do you think you are? You're going to let somebody else carry your poop down. Um, You know, that's the ultimate, ultimate in arrogance. Uh, Denali has done a great job with this over the years, with one exception that you would use these clean mountain cans, which was basically a big plastic pail with a a plastic bag in it. Everybody would poop it and when it got full, you'd, you'd wrap it up. And then at some point going back down, there was this one crevasse where all of those poop bags were thrown into that open crevasse. And even now the national park systems figured out that there's, you know, that's not good. Yeah. It never, never has been good, but I guess it was a compromise on, you know, carrying stuff. And so today I think most of the, um, the solid human waste is carried down to to Talkeetna. There's also issues like, you know, you've got like on Aconcagua, they'll actually measure how much solid waste you bring down. And if it's not some, I forgot now the ratio, but if it's not, you know, whatever is 10 pounds per person per, you know, for the expedition, then they find you, wow. which I think is great. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's no getting around that. I mean, like, hey, you only have two bags, you should have 15. Like, where's the rest? Exactly. Everest still has a problem of both the uh, Nepal site and the Tibet site, mainly at the high camps. There's, it's still kind of a gross environment, and I really wish that Nepal, instead of you know trying to figure out if they're going to raise the permit rates, uh, they would inst- institute some of these environmental policies and enforce them. So at the high camps where it's kind of gross and there's poo everywhere, um, does that? I mean, the climbing season's fairly short. The standard climbing season, like what is it, May to June ish? Yeah, April and May. Yeah, April May. So like, does it? throughout the rest of the year through, you know, July, August, September, does it go away or is it there the next May uh, or April? You know, it's, it's the old adage of, you know, just throw it away. Well, there is no away. Mm-hmm. It goes somewhere on this planet, but specifically at the South Pole on the, on the Nepal side, you can go up there and, and you'll see little turds <laughs> everywhere Yeah, and are big. And uh, the problem is that, yeah, there are 100, 150 mile an hour winds, but this stuff gets frozen mm-hmm. into the earth. And because there's, there's only a third of the oxygen, there's not enough oxygen to cause it to decompose. So it just becomes one with the earth and it's there forever. Um, it's, uh, it's such an interesting thing. I, I did want to talk for a moment, Alan, um, two questions. And I know you could go on for a long time about either one, but... First one is, number one, have you, and I know you have, just being there is, is a yes, but have you ever, or what's the closest you've ever come on any of these expeditions to a catastrophic event for yourself? I mean, I know you said moments ago that you were five seconds away from getting hit by a Serac or whatever, but um, th- it's a twofold question. Number one, have you ever had a close encounter or several? And if you don't want to share them, that's okay. Um, and then number two, have you ever been on a, an expedition where someone else has had, you know, a problem or you've had to deal with death on the mountain in, in some way? Those are, you know, and those are personal and private questions and only answer anything that you that you feel you would want to. I just want to be respectful. Yeah, no, I appreciate that very much. Jim. Um, the answer to every one of your questions is yes. And each one I could talk for 20 minutes on. Yeah. 
um, but just uh, kind of give you a, a headline on each one of them. Um, that on the first trip I made on an 8,000 meter mountain was Choyou, and uh, we had one of our teammates who died, Alex Yagi. He um, and his teammate had summited the day before, came back down to the high camp, and when we arrived at the high camp, um, uh, Alex was dead in a sleeping bag. And we found the oxygen mask pushed off to the side of his face, full water bottle, full snacks right next to him. So uh, like many of these deaths, it's very difficult to figure it out. Yeah. But um, we wrapped him in a sleeping bag and and respectfully took him to the edge of a, of a large crevasse and, um, and did a, a burial ceremony for him there because that was his wish. So that was, uh, you know, obviously that was um, very emotional, very yeah. um, meaningful, you know, causes you really to think about why you're doing what you're doing and, you know, what are the risks and the implications for your family and things like that. Yeah. I personally have also experienced a couple of those uh, moments. Um, I fell into a crevasse in 2002 on Everest. Thankfully, at that time, we didn't have fixed ropes, but I was roped to a Heralder from Iceland in front of me and Rob from Chicago behind me. Yep. I felt I went to a snow bridge and um, they pulled my sorry butt out. Uh, yep. But I was dangling in that crevasse, yep. looked down, proverbial bottomless pit, couldn't see a thing down there dark. And if I had not been roped up and my teammates had not had the skills to self-arrest yep. and they got pulled as I went down. Yep. And they fell and self-arrested yep. and saved crampons and axe, right? Just right down. Grandpa make that human axe, anchor. Classic, you know, self-arrest yep. position. So, you know, for especially young listeners that think that this stuff is just theoretical and never happen. Yeah. You want to bet your life on that? Yeah. And then the third, um, and this is a much longer story, and I'll just give you the bottom line is that I developed a high altitude pulmonary edema, H A P E HAPE on K2, an hour out of um, the high camp. And I didn't know it at the time. And as I've said that um, I can't explain it or defend it, but, you know, um, I had two choices in my mind as, as I slowed down and came to a stop. And I literally felt the life force leave my body. Hmm. And there was a moment there where uh, I was not here and I was not there. Wow. And, um, and all I know is that I was reflecting on almost nothing and I felt a surge of energy come into me and, um, and I will accept whatever anybody wants to say as a, a as possibility that it was my mom's yeah. spirit. It was God, you know, it was Muhammad, it was Buddha, you know, what I, and I won't argue or any of those because any of those could be true. What I've chosen to believe over time is that I was able to tap into a universal love that exists on this planet. And I was able to tap into it through the people that care about me the most. And it was a moment where I took a breath and then a big surge of another breath and took a step, another step, and pretty soon I was moving again. But the odd thing, Jim, and again, I can't explain or defend this, is in my mind at that moment, I only had two choices, to sit down in the snow and die or to try to go to the summit. Turning around and going lower, which is exactly what you're supposed to yeah. do, was not, it, that, that thought never entered my head. And this was my 11th 
8,000 meter mountain climb, not summit, but climb on an 8,000 meter mountain. Okay. I knew what to do. I had, I had all the skills. I had all the knowledge experience, I had all the judgment, but that's what I chose to do in that moment. Um, you know, so yeah. I think, you know, those coming home after experiencing falling in a crevasse or burying a teammate had another teammate that died on Everest, uh, that we had summited, uh, Mount Vincent down in, um, in Antarctica together and just seeing the fragility of life and just, uh, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, what you get back from these experiences again, um, you know, I think it's, I think it's helped me be better than I would have been if I hadn't have done it. I think, yeah, at, at quite a, a, you know, the stakes are high for sure. Um, you know, a lot of that goes through my mind when I, even when I was younger, when I think about doing more of the bigger mountains and ugh, as I get older, I'm, I'm even less likely to do them because of those high stakes. And it, it's, it's a challenge. And I think like for you, it was just what you needed to do at the time and, and, and it made you better and, and you're here and you've, you know, so many different experiences that you've been through. I, I think that it's really cool. The one thing you said that universal love that you sort of felt from everyone that's ever cared about you. Um, one thing that we didn't touch on, uh, that I know is near and dear to your heart is your mother, um, Ida, who you've talked about, um, quite extensively. Um, and the way that I sort of got from you, it, some of the things that I've heard from you is that, you know, she was an inspiration for you to do so many things and, you know, kind of you did it for her in, in a sense. Do you want to talk for just a minute or two about like what she means to you and, and you know, how you climbed for her and, and the cause and, and those types of things for a minute? Yeah, thanks for this opportunity. Yeah, um, Ida Arnett was born in southwest Kentucky on a farm and moved to Memphis um, when she was 18, got kicked out of the house. She was one of nine brothers and sisters. So when they got 18, my grandmother kicked them out of the house. And, you know, <laughs> your time is up. Go, 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 get, go get a life, go, get, go to work. And um, she married my dad, Jim, uh, after he came back from World War II, D-Day. And, yep. um, you know, and they had a really good life. They raised my brother, Ken, and I. Uh, in Memphis, Tennessee, in a little, you know, 1200 square foot house that was cost $15,000 in 1954. Um, you know, and we, we had the proverbial, you know, father knows best life, leave it to beaver life. And um, mom was, um, she was an incredibly intelligent, curious woman. And so as I began to, you know, become an adult and go into business, she always wanted to hear about how the business was doing. You know, did I make my sales quota? You know, and I go, mom, you're not my boss. She goes, yes, I am. I'll always be your boss. You know, and I, she would, wasn't go wrong. Mountain, <laughs> and I would go on these mountain expeditions and come home and just, I just loved telling in detail everything that I experienced. And she was a sponge, just soaked it up, wanting just so desperately to, you know, to experience those same, some, same type of things. Yeah. So it was a real special moment when uh, living in Europe that we were able to bring my mom and dad over to Geneva. We took dad up to Normandy that he could relive wow. that part of his life. And then we took my mom over to Zermatt so she could step on the snow and see the Matterhorn. And, That's awesome. you know, and uh, I tell you, Jim, those were moments that um, it was, I felt like I was able to give back to my mom and dad 1% of what they gave to me. But when, um, 
in the early 2000s, my dad was in the intensive care unit in Memphis. He had heart, uh, congestive heart failure and kidney disease. He was dying, 88 years old. Mm. And my mom uh, was oblivious to what was going on. She didn't know who I was. And uh, that's when I recognized that um, there was something wrong. And yeah. it was up that um, she was becoming symptomatic with Alzheimer's disease. And she passed away in 2009, and I had taken an early retirement from Hewlett Packard to uh, basically oversee and take care of her for the last three or four years of her life. Yeah. And I made a vow to her, Jim. I said, I am not going to let your death from this disease become another number on a list that I'm going to honor you and I'm going to do everything I might my power for people to remember Ida Arnett and the contribution that she made for this world. Yeah. And that's why I climb today. And, you know, what's interesting was, you know, my early climbing career, I started when I was 38. So I was pretty old when I first started. Yeah. <laughs> I'd say my first 15 clients sucked. I mean, I was terrible. Yeah. I didn't summit hardly anything. But then when I reframed it and began to climb for this purpose of being, you know, an Alzheimer's advocate combined with my passion of mountaineering, that intersection has allowed me to do things that I never dreamed. So while I say that Alzheimer's took my mother's life, it uh, also changed my life forever. And just like I said earlier that, um, you know, we don't choose what happens to us in life, but we do choose how we respond. And I chose to respond to my mom's Alzheimer's to, you know, my not summiting to challenges in my career by taking whatever I could and tease out of that, the positive, and then try to use that in a way that you know, could help me contribute in a, in a way that I had not before. Yeah. I mean, you, <clears throat> you've had such an amazing life and so many great accomplishments and it's great. I mean, everything, when I talk to you does center back to gratitude and just what your parents were able to do for you and, and the respect that you still have for them and, and your mom and your mother. Um, what, what, if you want to talk for a minute about Alzheimer's, like where's the research now and where, um, I know you, you, you used to know a lot about it. I don't know if you're s still staying up on it. Um, could you give anyone who's listening sort of an update and, and maybe any way that they could help the cause and the research or anything at all? Yeah. Again, thanks for this opportunity. Um, the, um, Alzheimer's is a disease just like cancer or diabetes. The hallmark sign of, of Alzheimer's is, uh, forgetfulness. And often people think that that comes with old age, that if you, you know, if you're 66 years old, like I'm going to be at the end of this month, that, you know, you don't expect me to remember everything. If you're 80, you don't remember hardly anything. If you're 90, you know, you're a vegetable. It's not true. Not true. You know, um, that Alzheimer's is a is a disease of the brain mm -hmm. where the, the brain basically begins to shrink. And there are these complicated uh proteins called uh, amyloid beta plaques and tau plaques that form in your brain that break the neurons that that create the memory and the first thing that goes as you have alzheimer's is the is the the short-term memory so and it's not that you don't remember what you had for breakfast is that the brain never created the neurons about that memory so your brain stops making memories and but then also over time it destroys the other memories. What's interesting is the last part of the brain that Alzheimer's destroys is music. 
the wow. part in the brain where it stores music. Yeah. I could always reach my mom with music, church music or whatever. Yeah. And uh, other people, we all talk <laughs> about this. And one of the things that people can do is to find a nonprofit, which gives, you know, the old Sony Walkmans or an iPod and to a, um, to a memory facility so that okay. people can listen to their favorite music. Um, but Alzheimer's is, um, is the only disease that um, is one of the only, the primary one that is, that is uh, 100% fatal. If you get it, you will die. You can't reverse it. You can't stop it. And it's also very difficult to predict. There are some um, gene um, tests that can be done that are mm -hmm. fairly predictive and also okay. now some blood tests. But the other thing that we've learned in the last handful of years is that Alzheimer's begins to develop in your brain 20 to 30 years before you become symptomatic. Wow. My mom started showing symptoms around 70. That means she had it in her, in her 40s and 50s. Wow. You know, but you don't show any symptoms. The, the research that, that in, that's going on right now, it has done more to tell us what we can't do than it has what we can do. But that also is very powerful. You know, another one of my sayings about mountaineering is that, you know, the failure to summit is not a failure. The only failure is if you don't learn. And yeah. my three times on Everest, I learned a lot that allowed me to summit on my fourth time. All these clinical trials that are going on in medicine, be they for cancer, diabetes, or, or for Alzheimer's, every single time you hear of a clinical trial that fails, I don't think of it as a failure. Yeah. I think of it as a learning and that advances research. I remain confident today, 2022 at age 65, almost 66, that we will find a way to address this disease in my lifetime. Giving a lot of us hope. I know I have a personal connection to the disease as well um, with my, my mother's mom who also passed away and I was a big part of that. So I always um, looked up to you and, and sort of you being an advocate for this disease. Um, and I believe if... Do you still have a link on your website, alanarnett.com, where people can, do you want to I mention do. that real quick? I have a big button on there that says donate, and there's three or four uh, four different companies, uh, uh, nonprofits that you can um, make a donation to. The one that I um, advocate the most for is called the Cure Alzheimer's Fund, uh, also the Alzheimer's Association. The Cure Alzheimer's Fund, uh, all of their overhead is underwritten, underwritten by other people, so 100% of your donation goes to research. And they've done some rem remarkable things like creating the ability to simulate Alzheimer's in a Petri dish in a lab, wow. so you don't have to do human trials to try out drugs. The Alzheimer's Association does a phenomenal lobbying to increase the, uh, the funding through the governance of the National Institutes of Health. Back in the early 2000s, it was $400 million a year. Now it's $2.8 billion a year, which is about the, the level that we need to get at to have a breakthrough. Uh, also, the Alzheimer's Association is the largest uh, funder of private research. So it's going to be a joint venture, a public partner par um, partnership that I think is going to, uh, to find a cure. But these companies all play different roles. And um, I always say that any amount anybody makes that's meaningful to them, that's meaningful to me, meaningful to the researchers, and meaningful to the families and the caregivers out there. Absolutely. Um, thank you for sharing that, Alan. Um, <clears throat> I, I know that, you know, stepping in it, just back, I know I know you're short on time. I, I know we only have an, an hour scheduled here. If we have to end this, just give me two winks and I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll end <laughs> it. But I just have a couple more questions. If you have a few minutes, I'd love to ask you. Always for you, Jim. <laughs> I appreciate it. You've always been so kind to me. And I'm like, I tell people that this guy comes into my class through Skype and, and whatever. And 
he's climbed Everest and he's climbed all the seven summits and K2. And like, how do you know this guy? I'm like, it's a long story, but I'm just grateful um, to, to be, you know, friends with you and, and to have this relationship. It's awesome. Um, yeah. I wanted to talk about a couple things. Number one, I, I believe you've been on the news before s- several times when, whenever it seems like there's a tragedy or something on a major mountain around the world happens, like you seem to be like the liaison between almost the U.S. and the tragedy on the news. Have Is that true or is that just me thinking that? Have you been on CNN and some of those news sources? I kind of Yeah, I, you name any network with three letters in their name, I've been on it. Uh, That's the awesome. TLAs, the three-letter acronyms. <laughs> and I, and I, I joke with them. I say, you never call me when, you know, when, you know, somebody had a lifelong dream of summiting Everest. You only call me when people die. Yeah. And, you know, and, and that's kind of a, a callous joke. And, and they say, well, you know, it's not news until somebody dies. That's, and that's I'm unfortunate. Saying, well, you know, in journalism, there's a saying, if it bleeds, it leads. Yeah. And that's probably true. Yeah. Um, yeah. So people, they call me up because A, I've got the experience. B, I've been writing about it, as you noted earlier, so kindly with uh, people like Outside and Rock and Ice and National yeah, Geographic. Absolutely. My own blog, you know, with three million followers on it. And I think what I do, and I'm, I'm often asked the same question by in uh, um, that what advice would I give to a, a um, aspiring journalist? Hmm. And I always say the same thing. And that is to be authentic is that, you know, when I first started writing my blog back in the early two thousands, late nineties, uh, you know, if I went and tried to climb a mountain and I ended up getting diarrhea and pooping all over myself, <laughs> and, you know, or throwing up or giving up, you know, um, I wrote about that yeah. and I just said, yeah, I got there and this happened and yeah. I didn't try to spin it. I didn't try to hide it. I was just very authentic. And I think that's what the press also likes. Um, contrary to this podcast, I can give short, succinct answers as well. So <laughs> well, we don't like those on this show. Um, I do but trust me when you're, when you're on the BBC world service and, you know, and they're like, oh, Mr. Arnett, what do you think has happened here today? I don't know what my accent is, German, for the BBC. <laughs> no, and I'm going, well, so here's how it happened. Well, thank you, Mr. Arnett, for your time. <laughs> You're like, wait, I didn't even get to the beginning. Um, so you always said, something that you always said um, to me, and I know when you, you've said it on the summit of Everest, um, I think a lot of it has stems from the relationship that you had with your mother. Um, and it's something that I think about a lot just in my life, probably because you've said it so many times in, in the um, discussions we've had. But it's a simple saying, but it, it's, it means a lot to me. And it's that memories are everything. Um, you say that you seem to say that in a lot of your videos. And, and um, <clears throat> where does that come from? And like, what do you mean by that? I know it sounds probably simple, but what does that mean to you? Yeah, I, I began talking about memories are everything that I would sit down with my mom and um, I would take a little, at that time, a little point and shoot camera, a little Canon um, power shot, and I put it on my knee and just start talking to my mom. You know, it's like, hey, mom, tell me, tell me about, you know, tell me about going to school. Yeah. And so she would just start talking about, you know, elementary school or growing up on a farm. And, you know, and I would say, let's go through all the, let's go through all your brothers and sisters. And, and she'd stop and she'd go, well, you know, I really can't remember their names. I said, well, remember Uncle Bill? Oh, yeah. Bill was my oldest brother. And then she would start talking. Yeah. And I think during that time, this is around the 2005, 6, so 15, 16, 17 years ago, that 
I began to realize that to some extent, making memories is, you know, kind of what we do. You know, we go on these adventures. You go off on this crazy thing to see how long you can survive alone in the wilderness. Yeah. You know, you make these memories. And all of a sudden, again, the culmination of our life's memories become who we are. Yeah, that's so true. Memories make us and memories allow us on a positive and a negative. We remember being bitten by the dog. We remember touching the hot stove. Yeah. You know, we also remember the first girlfriend, the first touch, the first dog that snuggled up in our lap that became our best friend. Yeah. Um, you know, that football game or that that ballet that just changed our life. We remember that and we celebrate those memories. And we also remember things that we learned from. So in the end, memories are everything. Beautifully said. I'm not even going to attempt to. um give my thoughts on that. That's exactly um, that beautiful answer. I do want to ask you a few more questions. Um, number one, I know that if I'm out there and I'm listening to this and wow, does Jim know this guy? Well, we talked about that a little bit, but what if I want to, you know, I saw a mountain once and I want to get into climbing. I want to climb Everest. I want to climb the 14ers. You know, I know that you started something recently and I see it on your website called the summit coach where someone, whether they have experience or not, whether they want to climb a 14er or they want to get on the path to someday climb Denali or Mount Rainier or Everest, whatever it may be, you'll coach them through that as a service that you offer. Um, could you talk for a moment about that and, and what that's kind of a neat service? Cause other than that, it's the first time I've ever heard of that. It's like, other than that, I have to go, you know, spend $10,000 or $20,000 and just go on these trips, which is a great experience as well. But I think it's neat what you have here. Um, do you want to just talk about that for a moment so people understand? Yeah. You know, part of me, part of starting my website, alanarnett.com, was a way to document my own stuff. And it kind of grew and also a way of giving back because I started putting gear lists on it and guide directories and all this other stuff. And so, you know, the, I get a lot of emails and, or messages from people thanking me for doing that. And I got to thinking, though, that, um, that I want to have a more meaningful, substantial relationship with people and not everybody. And so I started Summit Coach back in early 2017 with the uh, tagline of helping aspiring climbers um, reach their dreams. And it's just, I, Jim, it has been amazing. It's just been so fulfilling to me because I get people, I've got a 27-year-old who has never climbed anything. He's an aspiring actor in LA. Oh, that's awesome. And he wants to go get into mountaineering. I've got a 72-year-old with his 59-year-old girlfriend that they want to go climb the seven summits in one year and everything in between. I had three, four people on Everest this year. I've got one on Broad Peak and one on K2 right now. And what I do is I try to help people go into being fully prepared. And so, you know, I do all the normal stuff, gear list, helping them check guides, you know, physical training. But more of what I do is, is setting their expectations about what to go. So when they're there, they're experiencing it. And my objective is for them not to have any surprises and to have a positive experience. Um, so if you summit, great. You know, we all want you to summit, but there's many reasons why you don't summit. But you can choose to have a positive experience. And you choose to do that by being as prepared as possible. 
possible. And that's what Summit Coach is all about, is really being prepared. You know, if okay. somebody has a simple question, then I, you know, I'm more than happy to jump in and answer and help them, you know, two or three emails back and forth yeah, or sure. texts or whatever. Even a, I do a half an hour free telephone call and we talk, you know. And for some people, that's plenty. Yeah. For other people, they say, you know, this is a 10-year thing. I want to Summit Everest by the time I'm 40. Yeah. And I'm 32 now. And so I love those engagements oh, yeah. because, you know, we just develop this relationship like we have. And, you know, and I get the weirdest messages. Hey, I'm at REI and I can't figure out whether to get, you know, this this boot with a Vibram sole or this boot. You know, I love that stuff. Awesome. And, uh, you know, technology now with Zoom that, you know, let's, I've got clients all the way from Manila to South America to Europe to here in the U.S. So. To Pennsylvania. Right. <laughs> no. And Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> all right. So, you know, check that out. Aspiring climbers out there. All you need is the, you know, the, the passion to, to do it and, and the desire to want to do it. Um, and and I, I feel like most people can do that. I have a few rapid fire sort of questions for you, Alan, to sort of round this uh, awesome discussion up. Are you ready for it? Go. Okay. Um, what are you most proud of in your life? Using my climb to try to make a difference in the world. Um, if you could only drink one beer for the rest of your life, what would that be? I'm not a big beer drinker, but I guess I have to go with my hometown roots and do a fat tire. Oh, that's a good one. Wow. Um, if there was one drink in the world that outside of water that, that you would love to have for the rest of your life, what drink would that be? 24-year-old McCollin Scotch. There it is. I don't know what that is, but I can just uh, look it up later. Uh, it's probably very good. Um, if you could be any kind of car, what would you be and why? You know, people ask me how I can afford this stuff. And uh, it's a fairly long answer, but one of the one of the points is that if you look at my garage, I've got a 2001 Jeep Wrangler. There is not one thing electronic on that Jeep. It's got 110,000 miles, runs like a top. I roll the windows down. I take the top off in the summer. I've taken it up unbelievable roads here in Colorado. So I guess I have to be a Jeep Wrangler. Okay. Um, favorite peak in Colorado to climb? Oh, my gosh. That's between Capitol Peak which is just a phenomenal 14er back in the middle of, you got a backpack in typically some people do it in a day, but they're overachievers. Um, and it's, and it's got this, this knife edge yeah. ridge that you've got to go across and it's just, it's got everything. And then of course, Long's peak, which is oh, yeah. again, 45 minutes away from here. I've been on Long's probably two or 300 times, literally I've summoned to the uh, 45 times by different routes and it's got a little bit of everything and i've done it in all every uh, month of the year um and uh, longs and i have a special relationship yeah you, you you do i mean we won't get into it now but i believe is that the mountain where you got tossed to the side with some wind a few years back and that put your climbing yeah. plans that was a that was across the valley on twin sisters twin yeah. sisters okay all right but either way you got blown off your feet and had a pretty severe injury i believe it was um, a tough day <laughs> um, do you have any artificial joints? Artificial joints, knees, hips, elbows. I, I do not, but I, I, I have a, I'm very proud of a titanium rod in my tibia from breaking my leg on twin sisters. I uh, call him captain rod. 
Um, <laughs> we have we have a really tight relationship. I've had nine operations on my dislocated left shoulder. I've had an operation medial meniscus in my left knee, ACL in my right knee. I lost at age 18. Uh, gallbladder. Yeah. So, yeah, I love doctors. Um, as, as do I, who is one celebrity out there that you, um, that you look up to and that you see as maybe not a mentor, but someone that you enjoy, someone that you like. Now, maybe this is topical because, um, a couple of things, a couple of names come to mind. Tony Robbins, I think is a, a pretty interesting human being. Um, you know, it, it, I think he's an acquired taste to some extent, but, um, a lot of what he says, if you kind of cut through some of the, um, you know, the theatrics, sure. uh, is really powerful stuff. It is about you know positive living your life. The other one, this is this is really weird. I don't think I ever would say this um, before going to see uh, Top Gun Maverick, but uh, I just saw it the other day. The, it was good. But for all the weirdness of Tom Cruise, you know, from a personal weirdness to other things, I got to admire somebody that has the, um, the the drive and the creativity and the discipline. You know, he was under a lot of pressure to release uh, Top Gun Maverick um, at the beginning of the pandemic. And he told somebody, he said, no, I make, I make um, he wanted to do it on streaming and they wanted him to do it on streaming. And he said, no, I make motion pictures for the big screen. And he stuck with it. And, yeah. you know, it's just now uh, topped a billion dollars in revenue. But more than that, uh, I thought it was a really good movie. It was a I great movie. Highly skilled, highly produced, really contribution. And maybe one of the best, uh, you know, action movies we've seen, um, you know, since the first Thor. <laughs> yeah. I took my three uh, boys to see that last week, a couple of days ago. And we, it was like the generational, we all were back leaning back in the chairs and just enjoying every Yeah, but there's a, moment. there's a lot of actors, Meryl Streep, you know, for example, with the, just her skills and things, uh, um, oh God, I'm spacing the, the British, um, actress who often plays the queen and things, but, uh, I don't know. um, anyway, so, okay. Yeah. So, so those are, are those answers. Um, the last thing I want to ask you, Alan, is. What is next for Mountaineer Ellen Arnett? Wow, that's a, you know that is a sixty-four dollar question. Um, I uh, just signed up to begin taking Social Security at sixty-six and four months. I went on Medicare last year. Damn it! Um, <laughs> so I'm my birthday is July twenty-seventh. Um, as you noted, I broke my leg on Twin Sisters, uh, and uh, I've had COVID. It's been a tough stretch from a health perspective. Yeah. And right now I'm just enjoying this, this life of my family and being home, uh, not being gone for two months. Um, and also uh, giving back, you know, through the website, through things like this, through Summit Coach. Um, you know, so I think I'm at a new chapter. I often talk about Alan 1.0 and Alan 2.0. And I think I'm now defining what Alan 3.0 is. And that's a that's a chapter in my life where I'm giving back and trying to trying to make a difference to the extent that I can. Other people are open to you know helping other people achieve their maximum human potential. Absolutely. Um, I think you're giving back today for those that listen to the show. Um, honestly, there's, it is called the leader next door podcast. And it, and the idea was to really just get little snippets from people that things that they've, um, things that have helped them evolve and, and, and become better people. And there were so many little things. I have this notebook of things you kept saying that I was writing down. And I think, and, and the beauty of this is that it will be recorded forever. 
Um, but there's really a lot of things that you mentioned today that I think can help a lot of people in their mindset, um, whether it be with leadership or climbing or being a, a better family person. Um, I just wanted to thank you, Alan, for coming on the show today. Um, I, I know I kept you a little longer than I claimed that I would, but I do think it was valuable. And um, I think there'll be people out there that will enjoy listening to you and hearing your stories. And we didn't even really get into too much mountaineering. Um, but I, I, what I wanted to talk about is like, you know, the man behind the oxygen mask and, you know, uh, the Alan Arnett and how you became who you are. And I think we got a really great perspective of that today and, and sort of saw the kind of awesome man that you are and great leader that you've been for such a long time. So Alan, thank you so much for coming on and agreeing to do the show. I hope to maybe talk to you again in the future. Uh, let me, two quick things, Jim. Please. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, you know, my experiences are my experiences and I offer them with humility for people to take out of it, whatever they want. I'm not saying do, do it like I do or do like I say, I'm just saying these are, these are my experiences and I hope you get something out of it that helps you. Also, I want to thank you as an educator and what you've done in education uh, in Pennsylvania and, you know, contributing to, I've seen your students. Yeah. I've seen how they interact with you. I've seen how they interact with me on your behalf. And um, you are nothing but a positive role model in their life. And you have shaped young people's lives that will come back when 10, 20, 30 years from now will say, Thank you so much, Mr. Shields, for everything that you've done. Oh. So thank you, Mr. Shields. Mr. Arnett, thank you so much. Uh, you gave me chills when you said that, and I know it's authentic, and um, I really appreciate that. Um, have a great day. Go out there. Maybe you can find that scotch somewhere in the hillsides. Um, go out and enjoy Alan Arnett 3.0, and, and check him out on alanarnett.com. Thank you for listening to The Leader Next Door, and we'll see you next time. Next time.